This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Today, I'm going to talk about sports, which word on the street is not the hottest cup of tea for the average NPR listener. And believe, I am no sports fan either. Far from it. Football will put me to sleep. And I couldn't tell you which team LeBron James plays for. But that all changed when not too long ago, I found myself at my very first New York Liberty game. Here in Brooklyn, and we're off, and it's Brianna Stewart getting the tap. And when I left Barclays Center, I felt ready to be a fan for life. Dockwell Jones in rhythm. Oh, she goes fast! And it's not just the energy of the crowd that pulled me in. The WNBA has been so full of iconic moments this season. There was Brittany Griner's return to the game after nearly 10 months in Russian detainment. There was Aces player Asia Wilson's first 40-point game in August. Inbounds perfectly, and she's going to get a new career high. And then there was Liberty player Sabrina Ionescu, who set a new three-point shootout record during All-Star Weekend. I am being told that that is an all-time record for NBA and WNBA three-point shooting. Wow. And I'm not alone in my newfound fandom. And it's something that's been building for the last few years. That's Katie Barnes a sports reporter and author of Fair Play, how sports shape the gender debates. They've spent years covering the WNBA and its continued growth. When you look at the data, it's reflected there. Record attendance at various arenas. People are discovering the W and going to a game and loving it. And there could be a lot of reasons for this. The athleticism is incredible. The games are making headline news, and many of the players are charismatic and easy to keep up with on social media. I have a theory that there's another ingredient responsible for the growth of the WNBA fandom. The league is pretty open about gender, race, and sexuality. After all, it was the first professional sports league to host Pride events. And today, teams openly celebrate the very gender expressions of players and fans. But it wasn't always this way. Coming up, how the league shed its Barbie girl image. Plus, the plays it made to grow its fandom that other sports leagues may want to consider. Katie, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you for having me. So the WNBA just had its most watched regular season in 21 years. We're in an era where public attitudes towards different gender expression has become somewhat more accepting. You know, the league is more open about its players' gender identity and sexual orientation. And I want to talk about that. But but first, let's start at the beginning. What kind of image did the WNBA want to project at the time of its launch in 1997? Being a new league that was oriented around women at a time where we didn't have professional women's sports leagues, in the United States that were successful was a really big deal. And there was a lot of concern around how the image of the league would be you know, presented. And so there was a lot of focus on projecting femininity. So like, you know, the first 
five or six years of its existence. You can see it in terms of the way that athletes were presented in those early commercials with feminine expression, full faces of makeup. Okay, Barbie, it's up to you. She shoots. She scores. Hey, nice shot. It's Rebecca Lobo. WNBA Barbie doll really shoots her back. And to be clear, that was an authentic reflection and expression for some of the people who participated in those commercials. Right. But over time, you know, more of the players who were active during that time have talked about how it was inauthentic for them. And there wasn't a public discussion about the fact that there were queer players who were playing in the league or that there were a number of fans who also were queer identified. I recently rewatched a bunch of commercials from 97, the year that the league started. There was like a Nike campaign that with the WNBA players, I think with Lisa Leslie, Cynthia Cooper, and Cheryl Swoops, that featured three little girls sort of like critiquing their plays and like how they were doing. You're Cheryl Swoops. Forward. Houston Comments. How are you doing? You got some pretty good moves. In one of those commercials with Lisa Leslie, she was like shopping at the mall. And with the Cheryl Swoops one, she was like pushing her son on a swing at a playground. Does he have a jumper? He's only 11 months old. I had a jump shot at his age. I don't know. I, I kind of got the sense that the WNBA was looking for a high femme, family-focused kind of edge at that time in the late 90s. What do you think was behind this marketing? Playing sports, generally speaking, is coded as a masculine activity. Mm-hmm. If the assumption is that professional female athletes are going to be gay, then you want to push back against that stereotype. But, you know, it's also important to acknowledge the timing of when this was happening. You know, 1997, we're still in the midst of really having these discussions about AIDS in the United States, Mm. right? Like the gay rights movement as we know it today, when we talk about queer liberation today, that is not where we were as a society in 1997, 98, early 2000s, I think the W was struggling with dealing with the intersection of these cultural pressures and assumptions being made about its players. So what do you do? You push back against the assumption the best way that you can to hopefully invite people to cheer for your players. Now that has the unfortunate impact of marginalizing queer players, perhaps, of creating an unwelcome environment for some of your fans. It just really speaks to the time that the WNBA was originally launching. And I want to talk about some of the players who pushed to change things like earlier in the league, uh, starting with the likes of Hall of Famer Sue Wicks, who came out in 2002, or Cheryl Swoops, who was a three-time MVP and marketed as both a wife and mother who came out in 2005. How did their coming out change the league? Well, I think Sue Wicks, you know, being willing to talk about um, her identity publicly certainly said, hey, we're here. We're queer, obviously. Mm -hmm. And some of us want to start talking about it. 2002, I'm doing an in-depth interview for New York Time Out magazine. And at the end, he calls me up. He goes, oh, my editor's really pressuring me. I have to ask you this question. Are you gay? And I was like, yes. And that, I think, opened the door to a conversation You know, Cheryl Swoops is a little bit more complex, right? I remember when she came out, and my dad's a big sports guy, and I was not out at that time. Hmm. But I remember him saying this to me. He was like, this is like if Michael Jordan came out as gay. And at that point in time, it really was kind of like that. It was Hmm. a big deal. 
And he wanted me to know that one, this happened, and two, he was cool with it. It obviously has stuck with me throughout my life as a queer person. And I think that those conversations, they opened the door in a really meaningful way for some of the players that we saw come out in the early 20-teens that really shaped the WNBA as we see it now. Hmm. Sue Wicks is also notable for having talked openly about her frustration with the league for promoting, you know, a lot of the mothers and the wives in the league uh, and those who presented as straight, even, you know, as she said, it would be easier to count the straight players on WNBA teams than the gay ones. Yeah, I think Sue Wicks speaking out about that in the early 2000s and mid 2000s and continuing to share her experiences has been really important in terms of accountability for the league as it has I think, fair to say, Mm rebranded as the league evolved. You've also written and talked a lot about uh, Laisha Clarendon as one of the most consequential players in the league. Uh, They publicly identified as a a lesbian when they joined the league in, in 2013. And at that time, they spoke to Out Magazine and talked about opening doors. Um, And later in 2020, they also came out as the first openly non-binary WNBA player. What groundwork did Laisha lay within the league? Laisha uses... She, her, they, them, and he, him pronouns. Mm -hmm. So I often switch between them in case there's any confusion. But Leisha is both incredibly consequential from the perspective of sharing his experiences, but also from an organizing perspective, has been an incredible advocate that really pushed the players as a union Mm -hmm. into some of the organizing and advocacy efforts that we have come to associate with the WNBA in recent years. We're finally, finally, finally seeing people stand up for Black women. We're finally seeing the light click on a little bit. We're finally seeing like we can have a march for Black trans women that have been murdered at higher rates. We're finally seeing people wake up to the pain and the struggle that we've endured. In 2020, during the WNBA's bubble season, the Atlanta Dream owner at that time was Kelly Loeffler, and she was a U.S. senator. She had been appointed to that seat, and she was then running to keep it, essentially. And the WNBA players had taken issue with some of the public stances that Kelly Loeffler had taken. Atlanta Dream co-owner Kelly Loeffler asked the commissioner to scrap plans for players to wear warm-up jerseys reading Black Lives Matter and say her name. And she instead said they should put an American flag on all uniforms and apparel. They didn't want her in the league anymore, and they didn't want her being a senator. And they started actively campaigning for Raphael Warnock, who ended up defeating Kelly Loeffler. Um, and then eventually Loeffler sold the Atlanta Dream franchise, and it is now under new ownership. But you know, behind the scenes, Leisha Clarendon was absolutely involved in a lot of that organizing. All of these public-facing moments of WNBA players taking collective action just out of frame is Leisha Clarendon doing that work. You've spoken a couple of times in, in our conversation thus far about, you know, the league being disproportionately Black and disproportionately queer and disproportionately the intersection of both of those things. I wonder, how does that affect the way the players might approach their activism, and also how that activism is received. Hmm. What makes WNBA activism special is that it is collective, Hmm. right? So when we look at the growth of athlete activism 
over the course of the last 10 years, a lot of the NBA activism has happened as individuals, right? So LeBron James says something, Dwayne Wade says something, Carmelo Anthony. It's not necessarily whole teams, although there are exceptions to that. Um, And I would argue that the collective action consistently taken by the WNBA players beginning really in 2016 with the Minnesota Lynx uh, starting protests against police brutality and police killings of Black men um, after Alton Sterling um, and Philando Castile were killed by police. The Minnesota Lynx, you know, held a press conference and their four captains came out wearing shirts saying, change starts with us Hmm. and really talking about this issue. And then you saw league-wide multiple teams wear black T-shirts in protest and be fined by the league for their protest. Mm. Together, WNBA players learned that they do have a tremendous megaphone if they organize. Coming up, the page from the WNBA's playbook that other professional sports leagues might want to take. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Brittany Griner came onto the scene as a dunking phenom like over a decade ago, and she went on to make headlines when she was drafted wearing an all-white suit in 2013. First round draft pick. I had to say her suit, it fit a lot better than LeBron's, but it recalled LeBron's <laughs> draft day suit. Yeah, we don't have to speak on that. It was a different time. But people saw Brittany in this uh, really beautifully cut, all white suit, looking so good on draft day, is signaling like a new type of WNBA star who either didn't want to or didn't feel pressured or didn't feel the need to deal in the high femme looks. And then, you know, you fast forward to today, Griner made international headlines for her Russian imprisonment and subsequent return to the U.S. And in a way, she became a symbol for the inequities facing women athletes, um, not just in the league, but, you know, across, you know, so many other sports around the world. While many people have celebrated Brittany Griner, there have also been loud and consistent critiques of her for years. What do you make of them? Hmm. You kind of alluded to it when you're talking about, 
you know, Britney's draft night and wearing that white suit and heralding a new era of WNBA players. To me, it's not just about heralding a new era of being unwilling to compromise. I think also it's seeing players who can't compromise. And so she chose to share the fact that she is queer and get drafted in a white suit that is not a feminine cut pantsuit, right? Right. That speaks to, at that point in time, like where we had gotten as a society where, you know, she had the option to make that choice. Mm -hmm. But I also also think about what it means to authentically express themselves. And undoubtedly, some athletes shoulder that burden differently um, because of the intersection of their identities, because of the ways in which their identities subvert societal expectations. And Brittany Griner is somebody who has experienced that publicly for the entirety of her career. And I think all of those things were dialed up to a 10 when you know she was detained and then, of course, subsequently released. Mm-hmm. And I think it really demonstrates the precariousness of the experience of athletes who sit at the intersection that she does. When I think about, you know, all of the players that, you know, we, we've been discussing in all of these sort of different eras and moments of the WNBA, while all this was happening on the court, there were also big pushes from fans and supporters of the league to be more inclusive of the LGBTQ community, whether that be the players themselves or the people who are paying, you know, to come to these games and supporting the players. Talk to me about that. You know, in the early days of the league, fans of the New York Liberty staged a kiss-in in protest. <laughs> and there were lesbian fans who did a kiss-in and said, we are fans, you should cater to us. You know, that's part of the league's history. Mm-hmm. Like you would see franchises do equality nights or do a pride night. And I think those were things that were asked for by season ticket holders. And then also just pushed for by fans and they wanted to be embraced. It's interesting because the league has had a league-wide pride initiative since 2014. Mm -hmm. It was the first league to do it. And in some ways it kind of has created, I think, a before and after vibe Hmm. of like before the pride initiative, after the pride initiative. And so I think for a lot of folks now, the fan experience is really great and they feel very affirmed. I've been to a Liberty game and there was a queer proposal at one of them <laughs> that like just a couple nights ago, there were queer fans who kissed on uh, when the camera was on them on the Jumbotron. And like, that was very exciting, you know, and the crowd went not, went wild about it. And, you know, that's not necessarily a weird thing to experience at a WNBA game now. And I think it's not so much that the fans have changed. I think it's more reflective of the fact that it stopped being suppressed. Hmm. Thinking about, like, where the league is at in terms of its current popularity and having this cultural moment, I kind of feel like its acceptance of its queer fan base and queer players is one of the reasons why the league has become so popular. Does that feel true to you? I think that's a really hard thing to quantify. Mm -hmm. But I do think that people respond to authenticity. Right now, we see an authentic expression from players that is inclusive of the range of identities that exist within the league. And folks feel like they can be themselves. And, you know, the media will talk about how 
there are players that are engaged on the same team. There have been players that have been married on the same team before. I think people get attached to the stories around their favorite athletes. And when that's out in the open, there's actually, there's a there there. You become a fuller person and a fuller public figure to your fans and supporters. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think it creates creates more entry points, mm. um, more ways to fall in love with the league or to feel like missing a WNBA game is missing out. If the WNBA has allowed for a wider range of gender expression and can still be referred to as a women's league, and we're arguing that it's helped the sport grow, I wonder if other gendered sports leagues might take notice and follow in that way. You know, and, and what would it look like for us to see men's sports leagues embrace different gender expressions? I think it speaks to the cultural limitations that we place on gender expression broadly. Like the expression allowances for people assigned female at birth is just so much wider mm. than what we allow for people assigned male at birth. We have an entire word used to describe girls who subvert gender when they're children, tomboy. And we don't have you know similar language for boys. And so there's a level of persistence that has to happen for athletes who have those identities in male sports and in men's sports to get through efforts to push them out, which certainly exist. But I often think about that too. Like what would happen if, you know, defensive end comes off the line, sacks the QB, and we get like, you know, some voguing. That'd be incredible. <laughs> like, what would that look like? You like know, I would I would I would go to a football game. I would attend. Right? I mean, <laughs> like, I, I would, would actually go there for yeah. that. I mean, I might too. Katie. This was so much fun. Thank you for coming on the show today. This is like a dream to be able to have this conversation about the WNBA as I'm like a newly minted fan. Oh, well, welcome. We love to have you. This is so fun. Oh, I feel like Sporty Spice today. <laughs> that was sports journalist and author Katie Barnes. Their book, Fair Play, How Sports Shape the Gender Debates is available now. Coming up... Changing norms around sports betting are scoring big with young people, but what is it costing all of us? Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So, the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from the Kresge Foundation. 
Established 100 years ago, the Kresge Foundation works to expand equity and opportunity in cities across America. A century of impact, a future of opportunity. More at kresge.org. A warning. This segment includes brief mentions of suicide. Football season is upon us. And these days, that also means a ratcheting up of sports betting. Since the Supreme Court legalized sports betting in 2018, Americans have spent a whopping $220 billion on their new legal pastime. Professional sports leagues that at first worried about the integrity of the game are now starting to get on board. We've seen sportsbook locations open inside stadiums. And the ads, they are everywhere. And they've got endorsements from celebrities like Kevin Hart, Jamie Foxx, and even Charles Barkley. When you're betting on your favorite players, it helps to think like your favorite player. Game time in 20, that slip is empty. I got to call KG. Now I know it's the Super Bowl and all, but everyone gets a free bet. And to top it all off, Las Vegas is hosting the upcoming Super Bowl. So all bets are off or on, depending on how you look at it. But at what cost? If I said, hey, you know, Brittany, let's go to dinner and we spent $2,500. We're going to be like, kind of like, you know what? I don't know. We're going out with each other again. That's a lot of money. Gambling, an expected amount of money to be spent. It's not $20. That's Dr. Timothy Fong, a clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA. His focus is on addiction in adults, but the rise in young people with gambling addictions concerns him. I am getting more and more calls from parents who are like, my son or daughter has developed some problems with gambling and I need help. While states like Massachusetts have banned the marketing of mobile betting on college campuses, young people are still finding themselves drawn in by the promise of cheap bets and fast money. Today on the show, Dr. Timothy Fong gives us the play-by-play of sports betting and how shifting the line on what's acceptable needs to gain just a few more yards. Dr. Fong, welcome to It's Been a Minute. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, my absolute pleasure. So you are a psychiatrist leading the charge on the study of addiction, especially gambling addiction. What appealed to you about gambling addiction specifically as a psychiatrist? So I'm in Generation X, and I came to medical school, and one of the first things I learned was that addiction is a brain disease. That was mid-1994, 1995. But we were learning that it was mainly substances that were addictive disorders. And it really wasn't until the turn of the century that people start to think, hey, you can develop addictions to other behaviors, non-substance-related illnesses, gambling, video games, shopping, sexual addictions. And that really fascinated me. What is happening in the brains, the body, and the minds of people who develop these, quote, behavioral addictions? And that really was the fascinating question. Hmm. I live in New York City, and I cross the Williamsburg Bridge on the train all the time. And For a while, there was this huge, I'm talking, I think it was on the side of a building, huge, huge, huge billboard of Jamie Foxx talking about sports betting, sports betting. When I scroll Twitter, I am constantly seeing ads for sports betting being advertised by reality TV stars and things like that. So one of the things, what you're just highlighting is that gambling is now embedded in everything we do in American culture. You can't get away from it. Versus 40 years ago, it was seen as a sin, as a vice, as an 
activity done by really just a few small percentage of people in back rooms. It was seen as a product run by organized crime. None of that is out there anymore. It's all above board. Now, again, I'm not against gambling. I'm not against gambling as an activity. The vast majority of people who gamble do not develop harmful, long-lasting, permanent damage. But for the 1% to 2% of the population that do develop this condition, it can be lethal. It can be generational debt that impacts families for dozens and dozens of years. So one of the big shifts that we've seen in the past few years, and I know that if it's reached me, then I know it's really penetrating, people being able to make sports bets through their phone. How has the technology and handheld ease of gambling and sports betting changing this? It's changing in ways we never could possibly have imagined. And it starts with 24-hour access. It starts with then fighting FOMO all the time, you know, where if there are betting options that are constantly emerging every minute of the day. So that creates just a constant stress of constantly checking and a compulsion to look at various things. So we've seen people betting on things that never would have ever occurred before. For instance, uh, people betting on Taiwanese table tennis. One of the fascinating things that I never would have predicted that is with the mobile sports betting, combined with the technology of artificial intelligence and data science, that they've been able to offer types of bets and wages on the phone that never existed before. So as an example, uh, one of the most popular bets that are on sports betting apps are things called same-game parlays, which some of your audience might know about if you don't know about what it is. And so let's say, like last night's football game, I put $20 down and on a same-game parlay, and I need four things to happen in that game for me to win. I need the Eagles to win. I need to... Uh, their wide receiver to get over 50 yards. I need to have the Vikings have three turnovers or more, whatever it is. $20, four things have to happen that I pick. If those four things happen, I don't win $20 back. I win a much higher percentage back. It could be as high as $1,000. It could be $200. So in other words, a little bit like the lottery where I'm placing a small wager in the hopes of getting a bigger reward. That's really revolutionize the market. You know, you said that you don't want to see a possible gambling crisis in five, 10 years down the line, the way that we've seen like the opioid crisis. What specifically would that look like? Like, what do you mean when you talk about a gambling crisis? So right now, the prevalence rate of gambling disorder in the general population is roughly around 1%. So a crisis or epidemic would mean that that prevalence rate of that disorder goes up. So if that goes up to say 2%, basically going from 4 million to 8 million people. That's a lot of humans. We would also see things like suicide rates go up. We would see deaths. We would see lethal emotional pain driven by gambling disorder. We would see increased bankruptcies, increased uh, divorces, child neglect, stalled out careers. We'd see financial instability and and families not able to rise uh, up to the next class of uh, financial wealth, even though they work really, really hard. So things like that are not just subtle, but they're a clear damage. You said that you've begun to see younger and younger people facing essentially gambling addiction or a similar addiction as adults. Talk to me about that. Yeah. So I'm an adult psychiatrist. So in general, I'm trained to see men and women over the age of 18. I get maybe, I don't know, eight, nine calls a week from people just looking for help. Rare is it do I get a young person under 18 saying, hey, I have a problem with this. I need help. 
I am getting more and more calls from parents who are like, my son or daughter has developed some problem with gambling and I need help. So you think about, wait a minute, how does a 15, 16, 17-year-old teenage or young person develop harm from gambling? Number one, they have to have access to gambling. They do. Number two, they have to have access to money to gamble with. And that's what's really changed in the last 25 years. When I was in high school, if I wanted $20, it was difficult to get $20. Our 17-year-old son has access on his Apple wallet to my two credit cards. He has Venmo. He has Cash App. He has Zelle. He has PayPal. (laughs) All above board. And so that's the difference. And in fact, many of our young adults who come in, I say, where do you get the money? And they're like, oh, online predatory loan lender. (gasps) Yeah. What? You know, the money is the drug. The vessel and the syringe is the gambling app. So you put those two together, that's why you have this issue. I'll tell a quick story. I had a patient, he was 16. He opened up an account on an unregulated gambling, sports gambling website in California. He got online and the online sports betting operator, they gave him $5,000 in quote credit. So he never had to put any money in. Gambled it, lost it. He assumed he owed this company money, went to his parents, got $5,000 off his parents, lied about it, said it was for a college application, the ed consultant, that sort of thing, and paid this online illegal sports bet operator through Cash App and Zelle and things like that. That's what gambling harm looks like, right? Hmm. That's exactly the kind of story, unfortunately, we're seeing more and more of by the time they call us. We talk way more about drugs and alcohol and substance abuse and addiction in our culture than we do gambling addictions. I wonder, how does the psychological impact of gambling compare? Like, does it provide the same rush, that same high that keeps people coming back? Oh, absolutely. It's a biological, psychological, social condition. And there's been several studies that show when you win money, The rush of dopamine that you get is similar to what you would get from substances like opioids, cocaine, alcohol, food, sex. It's a natural reward. So if you were playing a game today between you and I and you won $200, you're going to feel a rush of energy and adrenaline and excitement. Your uh, pulse is going to go up. Your dopamine is going to start flowing. You're going to feel a rush of pleasure. I think what's different, though, over the years about gambling is that it's attached with a lot more shame and stigma when you lose. So with substance use disorder, you're intoxicated or you use drugs and you always say, yeah, I did those things when I was under the influence of drugs. That wasn't me. Versus gambling, I had so many patients say, I wish I had an addiction to drugs because to tell my loved one I lost twenty or $30,000 while I was stone cold sober means it was my character, means it was my morality that was at fault. But until we get rid of that stigma attached with losing, I think that's when we're going to have these conversations you know, still being too often undercover or in the back closets. Okay, so I understand what the stigma around losing looks like. But what would it look like to not have that kind of stigma around losing? What does that look like? 
I think when it'll look better when people understand that the reason that they're continuing to do these behaviors isn't because out of choice or greed or morality, but maybe it's because something's changed in their brain and their mind that's really more of an addiction. It's because they have urges and cravings that are intolerable or they have these false notions of gambling that they can't stop. What kind of treatment plan is there for gambling addiction? How do you approach working with a patient? So because it's classified as an addictive disorder, uh, we treat it just like we do any other addiction. We have medications, we have psychological therapies, a bunch of different kinds of therapies that work to help people understand their relationship with gambling, how to manage urges and cravings. And much like any other addictive disorder, the good news is that many, many people get get better. It's not a life sentence. It doesn't mean everyone's doomed. You know, in fact, when people show up to treatment, the vast majority of patients get better. The hardest thing that we have in our field that people, by the time they come to treatment, it's really severe. But again, how are you going to get someone who's gambling and they're winning money? And I think that's, that's what's really tough. Dr. Fong, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Timothy Fong, clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA. If you or someone you know is in crisis, call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. Hey, Brittany. This is Lenora from Farmington Hills, Michigan. I'm just wondering what you think about all of these viral TikTok videos of people overhearing strangers gossiping and then going on TikTok and repeating everything that they said and outing the gossipers. I feel like I'm seeing a new one every week. Oh, my gosh. Lenora from Michigan. Thank you so much for calling in with this question. So just to let you listeners in on a little something, Lenora has been one of my very best friends on the face of this planet for the past 20 years. We get to chitting and chatting and having a good time. And you know what? I think that's an experience that many of us have had getting together with a friend over a margarita and we just chit chat. Sometimes we get gossip. Now, that being said, there is this new trend that Lenore brought up of people going out in public, like say going to brunch, and they overhear some other people being really messy and perhaps even really, really mean at the table next to them. But then what they do is confounding to me. What these strangers do is they get on TikTok and they make a front camera facing video repeating everything they just heard, naming the person who the so-called friends were talking about and airing all their dirty laundry for the world to watch. They say that they overheard this conversation about somebody saying how raggedy their friend looked at her wedding or how they didn't like the hair she made them wear as a bridesmaid. Or I saw one earlier this week that was all about how these girls were saying that their friend, she goes outside with not enough clothes on. I don't wanna get into details. I don't know who all is involved, blessedly. So somebody overhears it and then thinks it's my responsibility to let this girl know her friends or so-called friends are talking smack about her. I mean, yeah, if I had all fake friends, I kind of would want to know, but I don't think I would want all of Twitter to find out before me. (sighs) People have been gossiping and being bad friends since time immemorial. And even though those might not be the best ways to spend your time, being a bad friend or being a gossip is technically not illegal. It's not a crime. Overheard gossip is a gift. And so don't ruin it by snitching to all of us on the internet about what you overheard 
at your overpriced little brunch. <sighs> Lenora, thanks again for calling in. I love you so much. And um, the next time I hear some gossip, I'm coming straight to you. And to all of you listening, I want to know what you want to talk about too. Anything from the biggest pop culture story of the week to the newest bangers to the TV show everyone is talking about. If there's something everyone in your world is going on about, record a quick voice memo with your first name, location, and the topic, and send it to ibam at npr.org. That's I-B-A-M at npr.org. I cannot wait to hear what you want to talk about. This episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Barton Girdwood, Alexis Williams, Liam McBain, Corey Antonio Rose. Our editor is Jessica Plachek. Engineering support came from Stacy Abbott. We had fact-checking help from Barkley Walsh. Our executive producer is Verilyn Williams. Our VP of programming is Yolanda Sanguini. Our senior VP of programming is Anya Grundman. All right, that's all for this episode of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.